it is truly a joy to be with you this morning to worship in the house of the Lord together. Uh, for those of you visiting with us this morning, um, we are glad that you decided to join us and worship the Lord together with us, and we pray that uh, this morning would be a blessing for you, and we are grateful that you are here. So we're continuing in our study in Ephesians, and if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be looking at the last few verses of Ephesians 1 today, looking at verses 15 to 23. And as you're turning there, allow me to read the text for us this morning uh, before we study it together. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Trick you there. So have you ever heard someone say, my heart is not in it? I'm sure you all have. We've probably heard this phrase may, uh, uttered in a variety of different circumstances. Sometimes it's uh, used by one to solidify their reason to leave their current job, to move on to something different or better. Or conversely, it might be used by an employer when they're noticing that that employee is just not engaged with their work and they say their heart is not in it. This phrase or something similar has also been used uh, when one person who has seemingly drifted away from another wants to end a relationship. Some have said it over certain hobbies when they've decided that it's no longer worth their time or their energy to continue to do what they're doing. And the list would go on and on. And the general sense of this saying, my heart is not in it, is indicative that the person no longer cares. They're no longer engaged. That thing is no longer significant for them. And I think if we were to dig deeper, the implication behind that is human beings, we find our sense of fulfillment, our sense of satisfaction and longing that comes from the heart. To quote James K.A. Smith, something has to grab us by the gut in order for it to be important, in order for us to actually do something about it. Humans do not merely want to have a cognitive and objective understanding of the world around them. We're also meant to have that subjective knowing or experiencing in order to find fulfillment. And as we approach our text in Ephesians this morning, we find that the core of Paul's teaching is that his hearers, and by extension, all believers, including you and me here this morning, would have a heart that knows the blessings of Jesus Christ. And all of this profound discussion on election and predestination and adoption and inheritance, Paul's prayer is that we would know in our heart, in our gut, 
in the core of who we are, the blessings we have in God through Jesus Christ. That is, these profound truths are not simply meant to fill volumes of systematic theologies that sit on our shelves, but are to be understood and experienced by God's people as a blessing of being in Christ. Now, this may be initially uncomfortable for us good Reformed thinkers. We, want to tend, we tend to want to separate ourselves from the, subject, the subjective or the heart and only stick to the objective truths found in our core doctrines and elevate them above all. Yet, Paul's prayer reveals to us that the blessings found in Christ are meant for our minds, but are also to penetrate our heart. And our heart is to know the hope of our election, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Of course, we want to be good theologians. We want to study our Bibles. We want to know our catechisms. We want to pick up those systematic theologies on our shelf. Pastor Herb and Pastor Casey before him has done a great job establishing for us the blessings found in Christ in our election, in our adoption, and our inheritance, which is secured by the Holy Spirit. These are deep theological truths, and they should be studied. But these truths are to seep from our brain and come down to our hearts and so transform our whole being more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. In a moment, I do want to look at the context of Paul's prayer. But before I do, I want to highlight the reasoning for Paul's prayer. Looking specifically at verse 15, the Ephesians have proven both faithful in their faith in the Lord and in their love for all the saints. John Calvin, commenting on this verse, writes, Observe here that under faith and love, Paul sums up the whole perfection of Christians. The Ephesian church is following the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love their neighbor. Paul has much reason to be thankful. But notice, his thanks is not to the Ephesians. He does not say to the Ephesians, thank you for the good work that you're doing. He is thankful to the Lord. It is the Lord who is at work in the Ephesians. And let this truth be a continual encouragement to all of us that it is the Lord's doing whenever we are found faithful and loving. In fact, if you allow me a moment, I'd like to invite you into my own personal reflections from the last several weeks. I have been thinking a lot about this past year here at All Saints, and none of us could have anticipated the sudden loss of our beloved pastor, and there was no preparing for how deep the grief and sorrow we've experienced. However, I've been so amazed at God's profound goodness that he has shown to us, the amount of love, grace, and mercy that has been shown by all of you has been extraordinary. The Lord has blessed us with new families being added to our congregation. We've all known how many babies that have been born to our families here in the church. I think that one day we had three. And the genuineness in our worship has never wavered. And as I reflect, I can't do anything but echo Paul and give thanks to the Lord for his love, his grace, his mercy, as is evidenced by your faith in him and your love for one another, especially in a time of great sorrow and great need. I've also reflected and I give thanks to the Lord for the ministry and pastoral care of Pastor Gray. Because of the work, the work of the Lord 
in our beloved pastor's life, the legacy is such that we as a congregation have been able to respond in such a way that we sought the Lord in faith and we sought to love and care for one another. Greg's humility was so apparent that his desire was that we grow in faith in the Lord and love for each other and we are experiencing the wonderful fruit of the Lord's blessing through the intentionality of Pastor Greg's care. This is truly evidence of our good and loving God who has blessed us in Christ. In all of this, I can only say that it is the Lord's doing. Let us continue to praise him for that. Now, turning our attention back to the text for just a moment, I'd like to ask this question. If the Ephesians are so faithful, why does Paul pray for further growth? This gets us to the main thrust of Paul's intention in his prayer. And if I'm going to quote Calvin further, he continues to write to Thanksgiving, as his custom is, Paul adds prayer in order to excite them to additional progress. My exhortation then to all of us is that our pursuit with the Lord's grace is to be known as a church and as a people that trusts in the Lord. We're to love him. We're to obey him. And we are to have love for one another. In light of what I just shared a few minutes ago about God's work in our, in our congregation, let us not be content and so neglect our continual pursuit of holiness. In our interaction with each other, let us grow in patience and in kindness, learning what it means to bear with one another and rejoicing in the truth. We are to follow Christ and love one another as Christ has loved us, embracing a deeper understanding of what it looks like to serve one another and consider others above ourselves. We are also to grow in our love for one another by proclaiming the truth to one another, surrounding it with love, so that should one of us be tempted to go astray, we may be brought back with the spirit of gentleness. We should also be spurred on to have a love for all the saints, even though there may be theological differences, or church polity disagreements, or different traditions altogether. As God's people, we are to be marked with love for one another that declares to the world that Jesus is alive. And to add to this pursuit, we must remember that even if we are found faithful, like the Ephesians, that we, as Calvin says, are excited to progress even more so in holiness unto the Lord. So as we engage with those of different minds in the body of Christ, let us pursue truth. But let us not neglect the command to do so in love, desiring unity. Because I want us to remind us of another letter to the Ephesians found in the book of Revelation which was written to them only a few short years after Paul's letter. And what we find there is two things. One, they're remaining faithful, and Christ says they cannot bear with those who hate evil. Very good. And yet, Christ says this against them, that they have abandoned the love they had at first. We must be diligent to remain faithful to Christ and to have love for all the saints. And if I could turn back once more to reflect upon the Lord's blessing on Pastor Greg's legacy, our pastor was one that also pursued holiness, trusting in the Lord, and learning to love the saints. He modeled for us what it meant to always turn to Christ and, be, and to be gracious for those whom he interacted with. We all know how intellectually gifted Pastor Greg was, yet one would never walk away after conversing with him and feel belittled. 
I, like you, would always finish a conversation with Pastor Greg feeling greatly encouraged. Let us, with the Lord's help, also look to Greg's model and the legacy as we continue to pursue holiness. And all of this now leads us to Paul's prayer. The attention of his prayer, as I mentioned, is to remind us of the blessings that we have in Christ and that the Lord make these blessings known in our hearts. He begins his prayer in verse 17, asking that the Lord give us a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and knowledge of him. First, let's notice the Trinitarian language associated with Paul's prayer. There is mention of the Father and of the Son, and many, including myself, look at the reference to spirit in this passage as the Holy Spirit. For only the Holy Spirit can accomplish what Paul is asking. We are reminded here that salvation is a work of our triune God, and we are saved into a relationship with a God who has forever been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul continues his prayer by adding his first request of wisdom, knowledge, and revelation by a desire that the Ephesians would have their eyes of their heart enlightened. I have mentioned many times already this morning the idea of the heart, so I think it's important that I give a brief biblical definition of the heart. Because sadly and unfortunately, our culture that continues to grow in godlessness has attempted to redefine what the heart is and hold it captive to its own devices. We hear all the time now that we should follow our hearts and we can't go wrong if we're just following our heart. Following our heart has now become a legitimate excuse to follow whatever behavior we wish to follow. We must be on guard against this type of ideology and think biblically. First, the Bible declares that all hearts are wicked and evil. And in fact, if we were to follow our own hearts, we would be led further astray from the truth and all goodness and fulfillment. For only in Christ Jesus are our hearts redirected toward the goodness and truth it so longs for. And in our context and discussion today, only a heart that is transformed by the Holy Spirit can we know and experience the blessing found in Christ. And before there are any accusations that I'm advocating for, for a purely emotional type of Christianity, we must once again think biblically. For in the Bible, the heart is the center of the human. It comprises more than just the emotional GPS. Dr. Michael Allen offers this definition. He writes, we must, we must remember that the heart depicts in biblical imagery something other than our contemporary identification of the heart with affection or emotion. Heart speaks to the intellectual life when construed more narrowly and addresses the self as an acting whole when rendered more broadly. The heart, therefore, is the center of our being. It includes our mind, our emotion, our will. It is, in a sense, then, who we are. So if we put all of this together, Paul is here, here is asking that our whole being, our minds, our emotion, our will be open to understand the amazing blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. And what are these blessings that the heart may know? The first blessing found in verse 18 is the hope to which we have been called. Paul alludes back to the truth he has already explained in his discussion of election and adoption found in verses 3 through 10. It is very easy to look at the theme of election and adoption in these verses and feel justified in our Reformed theology. It is so very clear that predestination, as outlined in any Reformed dogmatic, can be defended by this passage. But the hope that you and I are called to is not good passages in order to defend our theological position. 
the hope that we are called to is to know that these truths are realities. They are active and true in your life and my life here today. Our hope, our foundation is in the wonderful truth that our loving God has called us and has established us in Jesus Christ. The blessing of being called by Christ and adopted as children of the living God are not only to be understood in the mind, but are to be our source of joy and our source of strength. It is, if you will, our beginning. It's been established in eternity past and has been realized in our own past as we have experienced the wonderful and transforming power of God's love through Jesus Christ. In short, we have been saved and brought into God's family. That is a blessing in Christ that we should intimately know. It's meant to penetrate our hearts, that is our mind, our will, our emotions, and give us great confidence that he who began a good work in us will see it through and bring it unto completion. The second blessing Paul wants us to know in our hearts is the riches of his glorious inheritance. Once again, Paul is reviewing a truth he has already taught. The truth is the inheritance we receive because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And as Pastor Herb taught us last week, it has been sealed by his spirit. The Holy Spirit, as a down payment, as some have suggested to translate verse 14, is the security that we will receive our inheritance. Paul, in his prayer, wants us to experience the wonderful blessing that the Holy Spirit's presence in our life guarantees that we will one day experience all the fullness of God's riches and glory. And so if the hope of our election points us to reflect on the past, the glorious riches of our inheritance points us forward to what awaits us. And this truth should cause us to rejoice and praise the Lord. And considering this, then I would exhort us to pause and consider our own hearts. Do our own hearts desire to praise the Lord? Do we find ourselves wanting to sing or tell of the goodness of God? If out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, do our mouths speak of the kindness of God? Do we desire to be with God's people? And do we desire that unbelievers be brought into the family of God? We are not aimless wanderers on this earth, but children of the living God with an inheritance that awaits us. And because of God's love, we have much to rejoice about. Even in the midst of any great suffering, our strength comes from the Lord and his promise that we will one day be with him. And now the third blessing that Paul prays that the Ephesians would know is the immeasurable power of God. And this becomes the height of all that Paul has shared thus far because it is in the resurrection and ascension of Christ that all these blessings are secured and made known. Jesus Christ became flesh and lived among his creation. He died and rose again from the dead and ascended into, the, into heaven. This is the reality that secures our election and guarantees our future inheritance. For Christ accomplishes all that is required for us to experience all the blessings that we have in him. In other words, how do we know that what Paul is teaching is true? Because Christ came, he lived, he died, was resurrected, and now lives and reigns in the place of highest authority. That is how we know what Paul is saying is true. And so if we were to step back a moment and consider the message of hope that the world offers, we would find it completely lacking. 
There's always been other religious voices in the world, but our culture, as we know, is becoming more and more non-religion. But there's still no lack of options that have replaced traditional religions for finding salvation. And I'd like to offer a few of these replacement gospels that have been concocted by our postmodern humanity. There's the hope in finding yourself and becoming what you are meant to be, whatever that might mean. And because eternity does not matter, the ultimate salvation in this gospel is to find yourself at all costs, disregarding any social or moral structure in order to find fulfillment before you die. If this doesn't fit your fancy, you can go the route of re-identifying yourself along any lines you see fit. The wonderful blessing with this worldview is you can change it at any time. Or, of course, there's always the tried-and-true simplistic approach that simply utilizes the latest sayings to help bring peace and comfort. You know, things like, you only live once, you do you, be true to yourself. But these messages, as we know, are only hollow promises. They have nothing substantial to confirm their truth and potency. They are based upon the latest whims of fallen man. Yet they do all recognize similar themes and characteristics of man. That is, a search for meaning and salvation in light of the reality of evil, imperfection, and inevitable death. Man's goal has always been to overcome evil and death by finding salvation. Sadly, nothing in this world, nothing that man can give, can prove itself faithful to offer salvation and life. The only source of true power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can know this is true because Christ is resurrected from the dead. John Stott sums it up this way, writing, Man is mortal, he cannot avoid death. Man is falling, he cannot overcome evil. But God in Christ has conquered both, and therefore can rescue us from both. Furthermore, our Savior is now ruling and reigning, has, and has authority above all powers, dominions, and authority. So the blessing of God's immeasurable power towards us who believe is Christ's current reign. And so if we once again look at the hope of our election as a reflection of God's work in the past, and we see the glorious inheritance as our future riches, the current reign of Christ then is the power that sustains us in the in-between. And so as we reflect upon this first chapter of Ephesians, let us once more contemplate the wonderful blessings we have in Jesus Christ. We have the blessing of our election and adoption and the blessing of our inheritance in the Lord. Paul's prayer is that God's people would know these truths in their hearts, that we would know these truths in our own hearts. We would know the hope in God's elective call and the riches of his glorious inheritance. And to know Christ, the risen and reigning Lord who has conquered all and who reigns over all that secures all these blessings for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.